0: From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from the Washington Post. I'm Hey, it's Philip Rucker at the Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zach. From- this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, November 11th. Today, the next stage of the impeachment inquiry, the mental health crisis facing America's farmers and the challenge of selling CBD in grocery stores. Okay, so let's start with, who are you and what do you do?
1: Uh, Hi, this is Paul Kane of The Washington Post. I am a senior congressional correspondent.
0: When we think about the impeachment inquiry and where we are now, if this were a criminal trial, like like a regular episode of Law & Order, where would we be in the process right now?
1: I'm off. I'm off on that tone. It is actually a useful analogy for people trying to understand this. Previous impeachments had a special prosecutor, counsel, independent counsel, serving as the people doing the investigating part of it, which would be sort of the Lenny Briscoe part in Law & Order, (laughs) where you would have the Police who are investigating the crime before you get to the prosecution side with Jack McCoy and whoever his first assistant is this time around the House Intelligence Committee working with the House Foreign Affairs and uh, House Oversight Committees, they are serving the role here of the investigators they're the cops who are interviewing people behind closed doors. Uh, They've all been taking place almost always down in the basement of the Capitol Visitor Center in a secure room. And through that, they are working through witness after witness after witness to try and get ready for a public hearing that's coming up this week and next week, where they sort of unveils the evidence that they have put together so far.
0: So I think one thing that's worth noting in this whole process is that the House of Representatives, they're the prosecutors. Yes. At every stage of this, they are the people investigating. They are the people coming up with charges. If this ends up as a Senate trial, they will be the people arguing against the president, essentially. Yes. And that the Senate, they're the jury.
1: Yes. The House of Representatives acts both as the prosecution and the grand jury. Is sort of one way to think about it. They will put together the charges. They will vote on the charges. And then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi would designate a team to be the impeachment managers, they're known as, who go across the Capitol to serve as the prosecutors in a Senate trial.
0: So these closed-door hearings where depositions have been taking place, Mm -hmm. that is the phase of the impeachment inquiry that we are now done with.
1: And we're entering this new phase. Yes. Starting Wednesday, you will now see that move into the public arena, the public realm, where uh, Bill Taylor, the top diplomat in Ukraine – his predecessor, Marie Ivanovich, will testify on Friday, and you'll get to see them talk in public mostly about what they have already testified to behind closed doors. And that is sort of a a way to try and answer these charges and accusations that this has been some secretive Soviet-style in-a-basement process that has been uh, illegitimate from the outset. That's been the Republican criticism.
2: The only place I can think of where we had trials like this is in the Soviet Union. Maybe in the Soviet Union, this kind of thing is commonplace.
1: So now Democrats are answering that this week. And next week, probably just a two-week period here for the House Intelligence Committee, to hold these hearings in public to show the American people what they have already seen behind closed doors.
0: And I think it's worth reminding people, what exactly is the question that they're trying to answer in all of this?
1: They're trying to answer the basic question of, what did President Trump do in this effort to try to force Ukraine— to investigate his domestic rivals, the Biden family. That is what we're trying to figure out, both what Trump did to force the pressure on Ukraine, but also what carrots and sticks he was using, particularly up to $400 million in military diplomatic aid that was supposed to go to Ukraine, but was being held up at the same time Trump was trying to pressure them into these investigations.
0: So if that is the driving question at the center of this investigation, it seems like a lot of the people that have already provided depositions, that they've given a lot of answers related to that, and that at this point, Democrats, it appears, are pretty confident that there is enough evidence to say that that President Trump was putting pressure on Ukraine. So if all these things have come before, and Democrats already know a lot, then why are they basically doing the
1: whole process over again in public? I think this is just the public airing of all of this. Now, will there be anything new that comes out of it? Probably not. But you will get a sense of, can we really believe this person? Can we really believe that, you know, they are are trustworthy? And I think it's trying to sell that to the American public, the portion of the voters that still aren't really sold one way or another on impeachment.
0: So during these next two weeks of hearings, who is going to be asking the questions and why is that important?
1: They have learned, Democrats, from some of their earlier hearings this year. They've learned from some of the mistakes that they made. When they brought Corey Lewandowski, Trump's original campaign manager in 2016, before the House Judiciary Committee about two months ago, Corey knew enough to figure out that there were 40-some members. They all had five minutes to ask a question and he could just turn it into a circus.
3: But I, I simply ask you is it correct that as reported in the Mueller report on June 19th, 2017, you met alone in the Oval Office with the President?
2: Could you read the exact language of the report sir? I don't
1: have it available to me?
3: I don't think I need to do that and I have limited time. Did you meet alone with the President on that date?
1: This will look different in that right away at the start, after the customary opening statements, Adam Schiff, the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, will get 45 straight minutes of his own questioning, trying to sort of draw out their version of the story so that the viewers in the first 45 minutes will go, oh, wow, all right, this is what happened. In response, Republicans will get 45 minutes through their ranking member, Devin Nunes. He will have as his backup probably the counsel for Jim Jordan trying to rebut the storyline that Schiff has just put out for 45 minutes. She'll be more than 100 minutes into this hearing before you start to have the other members have a chance to ask any questions. And that just sort of will set a totally different tone than you usually have in a congressional hearing. They also – one of the things about – those hearings is that the first few minutes sometimes turn into circuses where the minority party, in this case, the Republicans, will shout and ask for a parliamentary point of order. We have a ruling. We want a process question about this. We'd like Democrats have it set up. So all of that will be handled at the very end of the hearing. Those are sort of two key changes that they feel like they learned from mistakes in earlier hearings.
0: So if we're operating under the assumption that at the end of these two weeks of hearings, Democrats in the House feel the same way about what transpired between the president and Ukraine then that that they do now, what will happen next in the process? Is that when they just go ahead and, and start impeaching him?
1: Essentially, but you'll likely have the Intelligence Committee work with the other two committees, House Foreign Affairs and the House Oversight, and pull together a report about what they have found. And it will not be written as articles of impeachment. It won't be written as like a grand jury indictment. But it will essentially lay out the case, and they will send and forward all this material to the House Judiciary Committee, which is sort of kind of like a grand jury, where Jack McCoy might be on law and order trying to get a grand jury to hand down an indictment of somebody, that's what the House Judiciary Committee will be sort of functioning as. And they will have about a week to two weeks of sort of deliberations, probably a couple public hearings themselves. Unclear if they'll need to call any new witnesses, but they'll be debating different pieces of that report. This is also the period where Trump will have his counsel present, They'll be able to have some lawyers there. If they do call witnesses, they'll be able to have – Trump's lawyers will be able to ask questions. And there will be some presentation of Trump witnesses. When Bill Clinton's impeachment was handled in House Judiciary in December 1998, the very last day, he got to bring about – four or five witnesses forward, some of them are more historian types who explained why they thought this didn't rise to the level of impeachment, but essentially he had an entire day to present his side of the case. Uh, that's what will happen in House Judiciary for President Trump. And then at that point, there'll be Articles of impeachment that will have been drafted. We're not sure how many.
0: But that would basically be the equivalent of actual charges that will be filed against the president.
1: Yep. So after the House Judiciary Committee has drawn up and and approved a certain number of articles of impeachment, the matter moves before the entire House of Representatives, all 430-some, get to have a say in each article. Uh, It will be about a week-long debate culminating with votes on each of the articles of impeachment. And there's no guarantee that they all pass. In December 1998, House Judiciary sent four articles to the full House, and they only approved two. At that point, when they do approve the articles of impeachment, President Trump will be impeached. So in that timeline, you would have the House voting by about Friday, December 20th or so on articles of impeachment, And there is a historical quirk where that day they will take whichever articles are approved, box them up nicely, and whoever are designated as the House impeachment managers actually walk across the Capitol – to present the articles of impeachment to the, sec- <laughs> the secretary of the Senate. Um, that feels what,
0: like a, a weird Christmas gift. Yeah.
1: Oh, it's, it'll it'll be it'll, it'll be like the O.J. White van. You know, every <laughs> every TV camera will be set up to watch these impeachment managers walk over to the Senate. Uh, it was that way 21 years ago. All indications from the Senate are that they will break for the holidays, that they're not going to start this trial immediately. They would probably want to have a two-week break to prepare themselves to negotiate out the terms of how things should work. And that means if they hold to that timeline, you'd be looking at early January for the start of the Senate trial.
0: Paul Kane is a senior congressional correspondent for The Post.
4: We have been spending the year following the struggles of farmers in this country at a very pivotal moment in time.
3: Exports to China were down $1.3 billion during the first half of 2019.
4: The trade war has to end. Uh, We need those foreign markets. The trade war is happening. They've had historic rainfall. Farm bankruptcies are rising. Income is flattening out. And so they're really, really
0: struggling. Annie Gowan is the Midwest correspondent for The Post. The farming industry in the U.S. faces its worst period in decades. And Annie says that mental health experts are seeing an increase in suicides among farmers. The number of calls to the farm aid crisis hotline doubled last year. And they're on track to stay at that level this year, too. Governments and public agencies are kind of
4: moving to respond to what they see as a growing mental health crisis in American farmland. So there's a big concern that these farmers who have had several years of bad commodity prices, even before the drama of the tariff war happened, are really, really struggling and they need help, they need services, they need support.
2: There's shortages across the entire country and we're no different. Mm -hmm. Um, Just to get into a a psychiatrist, um, for instance. And see, Saturday I was going through some pictures and... I happened to come across that goofy picture of us from way back when we were in college, like, I mean.
0: So you went to South Dakota, and you spent some time with a woman named Amber. Mm-hmm. Tell me about her. So Amber
4: is the mother of three, and Amber Dykeshorn is her name, and her husband's name was Chris. She'd been married almost 15 years, and Chris decided a few years back that he wanted to take over part of his family farming business. And they bought some livestock and they moved into a family home on a property that had been in their families since the 1920s. And for the first couple years, I think things went well for them. But because of all these issues... That we've just been talking about, you know, bad markets and rain, Chris fell into a terrible depression. Uh, just actually recently, not, not that long ago, starting in May, they started to see signs that he was depressed. He was overwhelmed. He was moody. He wasn't sleeping well. He was losing weight. And uh, she tried very hard to help him. But um, ultimately, he killed himself on the 13th of June.
1: So often when Chris and I would go to bed at night, I would just lay my head on his chest, and he'd have his arm around me like I do our kids. Mm-hmm. And I just think,
3: did I make his arm hurt, or did he just,
1: you know, he never complained, but
4: all oh my arms are sore. I just miss miss that, and I don't know if, I don't know. Mm-hmm.
3: Just not having him there. It's hard to thing.
0: Yeah. And And for Amber, what was that like?
4: Well, first of all, let me just backtrack a little bit and say she is a woman of faith and her faith is so strong. It's really quite inspiring. So in church, I noticed that there was one, just one brief moment in Mm -hmm. the second hymn that you got a little bit emotional.
1: You know, when I sing songs and I just, like if they talk about like a dad
4: or like, the Heavenly Father. When I when I hear things about a father, it makes me like feel bad for my kids if they don't. Mhm.
1: Um. Or if it talks about like when we get to heaven. Mm-hmm. And it's like I cry because I'm so happy for Chris. Because I know "No, he's there." Mm-hmm. And
2: I know the first person he went and talked to was his grandpa Bill, who used to live where Jim lives.
1: And I feel like one of those songs is maybe talking about that.
4: Her faith is incredibly strong, and she has a lot of support from the church community and from her close-knit family. She has responded with, you know, faith that everything was going to be okay, and she's putting everything in God's hands, which is quite, you know, inspiring. But she's she's just really struggling. I mean, I talked to her today, and she said, "You know, what if I had done more? What could I have done? You know, how could I have helped him?" And she did. You know, she did a lot. They found a counselor for him. And he was hospitalized. In the end, though, um, he just he just chose to take his own life.
0: And and what happens to their farm? What happens to their family now?
4: So he left her without a will. And so she's really got to, to struggle to kind of figure out how, how to kind of deal with the aftermath of this. I think that's kind of what the story is about is, you know, how does, how does a single mom go on? And, you know, they're selling the livestock off so that she can pay back some of the operating loans. And then she's going to try to get a pro bono attorney to help her sort of, you know, unravel all of the kind of legal issues around dying without a will. She's hoping that can be a pro bono thing because she made like $18,000 last year as a part-time insurance agent. And so she's really, really, you know, got a tough road ahead.
0: You mentioned the fact that a lot of the data that we're seeing about mental health issues, especially among farmers in rural areas, that they have seen a dramatic uptick in the number of people seeking those resources. But the resources that exist, is that enough for... Farmers who are currently struggling.
4: No, and I think it's really hard because I think that's the great story of rural America is the healthcare deserts that exist there. I mean, I was speaking to Andrea Bornestad, who's a professor at South Dakota State University, and she was telling me that ninety percent of the counties in South Dakota have a shortage of mental health providers, and there's a healthcare system called Avera, which is one of the big sort of hospital systems in rural South Dakota and they actually just started a farmer hotline in January to help sort of support farmers 24/7
2: calls uh-huh. free yeah.
4: and you have uh, counselors on the phone you
2: know, okay trained license uh, assessment counselors that triage the phone call and then
0: identify so you talked to some of the healthcare workers who help provide some of these resources to farmers what did they say about what their work is like and how is providing mental health resources to farmers different from providing it to other folks in other parts of the country? Well,
4: they all say that they're very reluctant. Farmers are very reluctant to seek help.
2: These are proud people. These are, you know, self-reliant, uh, independent individuals. And they're bootstrappers raised by generation of bootstrappers, right? They, mm-hmm. they don't want to ask for help. So we knew that um, we were going to go through another one of those stressful times. As Carl said, it's a stressful industry anytime, anytime. But everybody's got a point where, you know, it's too much.
4: You know, farmers are very independent. They're their own bosses. You know, they fix tractors and they move earth, you know, so they're not really necessarily willing to kind of admit like, hey, I think something's wrong. I have a
0: problem. And I think like culturally there is a history of farmers having to deal with stress like this, right? That there are years where your crop isn't doing so well and then, like, hopefully it comes back. But that's kind of part of the experience of being a farmer is that there are huge swings in whether you're doing well or whether you're not doing well.
4: Right, and I I think that that's what's different about this time is that there has not been an uptick, especially in the commodity prices. So it's kind of been five years of a downswing, and they've been waiting for things to come back, and then they got hit by really bad weather and everything else. So... I think that's been um, been part of the problem. You know, of course, it's an up-and-down business, and they all know that. But just lately, there seems like there's more downs than ups.
0: Annie Gowan is the Midwest correspondent for The Post. If you or someone you know needs help, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK for free confidential support. That's 1-800-273-TALK. And now one more thing, the challenges that companies are facing as they try to get CBD products into grocery stores.
2: I always tell people, you have to think back, I started uh, my beverage days at Red Bull, and if you think back in 1998, an energy drink didn't even exist in the North American marketplace. Now look at the energy drink segment. I believe the same thing will happen with CBD-infused beverages.
0: That's Jim Bailey. He's the president and CEO of Fivita Organics, which sells drinks that contain CBD oil, which is also marketed as active hemp extract. Some people say that it provides some of the benefits of cannabis, like pain relief, without actually getting you high. Bailey's company sells CBD-infused beverages in California and Colorado. He wants to expand to stores across the U.S. But according to business reporter Laura Riley, federal regulations around these products are pretty complicated.
3: Basically, manufacturers think that CBD has been legalized in food and the FDA says no. It's only legalized for food if there is a specific regulation allowing its use. And because this has to be tested and tested again, it could be a really like a multi-year process. Rather than legalizing the category across the board, we're going to see individual products brought forward and a petition being made for their one-by-one legality because there's a lot of money at stake and because this multi-year process is going to gum up the works for for some of these things that are in in the pipeline. I would guarantee you that all the big players in terms of food food producers, you know, from Conagra Foods to you know any any a Unilever, I'm sure they're all tinkering with some kind of formula for a CBD infused something, you know, whether it's chocolate or ice cream bars or you know a beverage like a tea or a kombucha. I think it's an inevitability that people embrace this as a new trend. Uh, there's clearly consumer interest, and then you also have retailers that are really champing at the bit to get it in stores. So Kroger's said yes, CVS, Walgreens, lots of major chains have expressed interest in having CBD products in now that are you know tinctures and lotions and those kinds of things, but. As soon as there's a regulatory framework for the
0: food and beverage portion, they're all good to go. For now, those FDA rules are at odds with federal laws that ban companies from adding even approved drugs to human or animal food. So these products remain in limbo. That makes it dicey to market and sell CBD drinks. Some companies have already run into trouble for printing CBD on their labels, or for making claims about their product's effectiveness. Bailey's company is being cautious. It labels its products as containing active hemp oil rather than CBD. But other companies are taking bigger risks.
2: Basically, it comes down to the claims that they're making. That's really what uh, you know the FDA is looking for. Until there's more science behind it, uh, the FDA has sort of said, stand down. We don't like anecdotal you know, evidence. We need real science sort of thing. So they're really just cracking down on people that are making these egregious sort of claims around the product. There's such a pent up demand, both from a consumer standpoint, from a retailer standpoint, Uh, This category is way too big to ignore. And, uh, you know, once uh, the FDA does have a point of view, it's going to be really exciting to watch this take off, you know, right across the country.
3: So I do think it's going to absolutely explode as a category. But there are things that we still don't know. We don't know longitudinally. If you have taken CBD oil for years, breakfast, lunch and dinner... Are there cumulative effects to the liver, to other organs? So as this category really explodes, we definitely need to do some independent testing medically and otherwise. And then we need some third-party auditors to actually you know, monitor the level of CBD in the products that are being put on the market.
0: Laura Riley covers the business of food for The Post. That's it for today's show. I'm Martine Powers. We'll have a lot more coverage of the impeachment inquiry this week, with coverage of the House Intelligence Committee's open hearings starting on Wednesday. In the meantime, we're curious— What are your questions about the impeachment process? What continues to confuse you? Or what do you want to know more about? Post your thoughts on Twitter and use the hashtag PostReports. Or send an email to PostReports at WashPost.com. We'll use those questions to inform our upcoming coverage. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.